Amen. As we come this morning, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We are beginning a new series this week on 2 Timothy, and we are going to be walking through it. If you wanted to give a description of 2 Timothy, really you could say it was sort of the relay race, and you were seeing the torch of the faith pass from one generation to the next. You could say that the spiritual baton, the baton of the spiritual life was being passed from Paul to young Timothy. And so as we come to the word of the God of God this morning, we understand that Paul is taking up his pen to encourage his young understudy, young Pastor Timothy at the church at Ephesus in the work of the gospel. As we come this morning, another picture I want to give to you is one of a marathon. Now, who's ever watched the marathon on TV? Anybody? I know you haven't ever competed in it. Most of you haven't. Maybe you have competed in one. But here's the thing we need to understand. We watch the marathon, and isn't it amazing? They get ready for the New York Marathon, and they get a picture of all those thousands of people jammed into the street, a huddled mass, just all kinds of people. And invariably, always what happens? I start picking out the people. What are they doing there? I mean, it'd be like me showing up. Ain't no way I'm making it through a marathon. Come on. And I'm sitting there and you pick out the old guy, you know, the really old guy who's withered and he's sort of slumped over and you go, no way he's making it past mile 10, much less two. As we understand we, as the gun is fired, we see the huddled mass sprint off into the distance. And just imagine, if you would, the mass spreads off. And over those first couple miles, what do they do? Slowly they spread out from a huddled mass into a long ribbon of people. But still at the front of the pack, there's a group, there's a huddled group. And you are amazed to see that this old man is keeping up with the pace of these younger guys. And he's running, he's running diligently, he's running hard. And as you watch, and continue to to see over the next few miles. Now in the middle of the race, there are people dropping off the back. They're dropping out, throwing in the towel, saying, I quit. And you're amazed. This old guy is not just keeping up with the pace. This guy's actually setting the pace. He's out in front of people. He's running ahead of the whole field. And as you watch him close in, on the finish line, you see he is far outpaced, far outdistanced. Everybody that he began with, the huddle mass, now is just one withered and worn old man running across uh, ahead of the whole field. He crosses the finish line and then he turns around and he jogs back to his young competitor who's getting tired, who's getting worn. He's worn out because he just got beat by an old man and he's looking for some kind of encouragement. The old man runs back and comes alongside and says, listen, don't give up. You keep going. Don't quit. You're almost there. Come on just a little bit further. You can make it. That picture is the picture of what unfolds in second Timothy. That's the picture of Paul, a 60 year old man running the race. Well, enduring all of the trials and tribulations of life, overcoming all of the marathon challenges of life and he sprints across the finish line and as he's sprinting across the finish line he turns and he jogs back to young timothy and he says young timothy don't quit don't give up don't turn back don't look back you come on and you finish the course set out for you now if that old man running the marathon 
were to give a class on how to run with endurance, every one of us would sign up, wouldn't we? We'd want to know what he had that we didn't have. Well, listen. Paul gives us the course notes for how to run with endurance in this passage. He shows us, he teaches us how we can live, how we can run the race with endurance, how we can work diligently for the gospel. And he shows us that the firm foundations of our ministry are not based in and of ourselves. They are based on God. He says to Timothy, listen, you stay the course, you guard the gospel, you preach the word. Timothy, you work diligently in the close until the close of the this earthly course. Here's Paul in a cold, damp, dark, and dreary dungeon. Paul chained and shackled. Paul awaiting his execution. And he is writing back to his son in the faith and saying, listen, there's any number of reasons I could be upset. There's any number of reasons I could be discouraged. If you just go through and you see them in chapter one, verse 15, Paul says everyone in Asia has turned against him. In chapter four, verse 10, he says that Demas, who was once considered his fellow worker, his partner in the gospel, has now deserted Paul because he has loved this present world. In chapter four, verse 14, Paul points out out that he could he could just bemoan the fact that Alexander the metal worker the coppersmith Alexander had sold him out and caused him much harm perhaps it was Alexander who is even the cause for the reason Paul was sitting in jail awaiting his execution in chapter 4 verse 16 we see a man who quite frankly if he were in our place today We would have no shock or apprehension if he was depressed and despairing each and every day. Because he says there, my first defense, at my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. From a man who was experiencing that kind of alienation, that kind of hardship. We would expect a letter not of encouragement, but a letter pouring out how sorry we should be for him, how we should help him out. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't focus on himself. He focuses on the gospel and young Timothy coming along and completing the race. Indeed, we would expect Paul to be a bitter, a pessimistic, discouraged old man. His hopes and his dreams shattered by the overwhelming disappointments and setbacks within life. And yet we find him sprinting across the finish line and turning back and saying, Timothy, you come on, you come on, don't turn away. Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Timothy, you be strong in the gospel. Timothy, you be you continue to preach the gospel. You come on and follow me, Timothy. In a culture with a rapidly expanding rate of dropouts in ministry, I think it would do well for all of us to study this passage of 2 Timothy and understand the wisdom that God gives us through the Apostle Paul. In a study done last year, we, under, we learned that 50% of ministers who are ordained to ministry today will not last five years in the ministry. One out of every two ministers who are ordained and begin a ministry this year will be gone 
gone from the ministry within five years. One out of every ten ministers who begins in ministry today will not retire as a minister at the close of their life. Over 1,700 pastors last year left the ministry every month. 1,700 pastors left ministry per month last year in the United States. Uh, Also, 1,300 pastors per month were terminated from their church positions, many of them without any just cause. 3,000 ministers a month were leaving the pulpits. What a sad and sorry case, and yet I can't help but say, hey, listen, if you need encouragement, go to 2 Timothy and just read what the apostle writes to the young pastors. Indeed, 50% of pastors in ministry today say that they would leave the ministry if they could only find employment elsewhere. That's a sad and sorry lot, guys. And we need to be aware of it. But understand this, the problem's not just in our pulpits, it's actually in our pews. Because not only is there a problem with the pastors enduring until the end, there's a problem with the people enduring to the end. For we understand from the statistics last year alone, 3,500 people per month left the church. 3,500 people per month packed up and left the church. Now, indeed, some have been wounded by criticism and conflict in the church. Some have dropped out, only come rarely. Some have dropped out entirely. But listen, all that all the most of those who have been hurt so bitterly from the church. Almost all of them. Rarely seek to find a place to serve the living God. They don't want to risk getting hurt again, and so they don't get involved in serving the Lord. Any discouraged pastors and Christians need to come again to Second Timothy and to read what Paul writes. It's a very personal letter. It's Paul's last letter that he wrote to his son, beloved son in the faith who was timid by nature and often had stomach problems. But understand, Paul, uh, Paul knew what Timothy was going through. He understood his feelings of inadequacy. He understood how he could be intimidated by those around him and Paul it looked like Paul was about to to be executed and so additionally to being a pastor the weight of Paul's mantle was about to fall on Timothy's shoulder and here's the sum total of what Paul has to say Timothy don't be ashamed Timothy, by God's grace, you exert yourself and live heartily to the Lord. Do everything that you can. Live to the utmost of your power, being willing to endure your share of hardship and preserving and promoting sound doctrine. Timothy, you walk in the firm foundation of God's grace that has saved your soul. In Paul's opening greeting and in his expression of thanks to God for Timothy, we see the firm foundation for a lifetime of faithful ministry. The firm foundation of a lifetime of faithful ministry. And understand this, when I say ministry, I'm not talking about professionals who stand in the pulpit and wax eloquent, unlike me. I'm talking about people who are like you and I in every way. People who have been saved by God, their souls converted, gifted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry of the gospel. 
I'm referring to the biblical truth that every Christian saved by God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is then given a spiritual gift to serve God and serve the gospel in the furtherment of his kingdom. See, if you're a Christian, you weren't saved so that you could sit soaking sour. You were saved so you could do what? Serve. Serve. So that you could serve. And so we understand all Christians need a firm foundation for faithful ministry in order not to burn out, not to drop out of the Christian race. And this morning we are going to look at the first five verses there in Second Timothy chapter 1 and see the foundations of a faithful ministry where there will not be dropping out and burning out, but where there will be a continued passing along of the faith from one generation to the next. Let's take our Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and stand in honor of the reading of this, God's holy and inspired Word. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The Word of God reads as follows. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we ask now that you would minister to us as we hear your word, Father, that we would heed it and take it into our hearts and lives and that it would transform how we live, how we see the day-to-day unfolding of our lives. Lord, allow us in the midst of this time, Father, to, to have your Holy Spirit come and illuminate the text and bring it into, into focus so that we might see clearly who we are, sinners that need a Savior. But Father who we have become in Christ Jesus, sons of the Most High, serving with every ounce of energy that you have given. May you lead us and guide us. May you take us forth to show and to share your gospel as we go out. And Father, we pray now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage a firm foundation for faithful ministry rests on knowing God's call on your life through the gospel. A firm foundation for faithful ministry rests not on who you are, not on what you can do, not on all of your gifts and abilities. But listen, based upon who God is and what he has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it is not based on who you are or who I am. It is based on who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel. We need to know God's call on our life. We need to know what it means to be 
forgiven of our sins and have the hope of eternal life. And we need to let it work itself out day by day as we live within this world. Now, there are two points today that we are going to see about the gospel foundation. First of all, the gospel foundation brings us into a a close relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and with God the Father. But secondly, it not only brings us into a close personal relationship with our Savior, with our God, but it brings us into a close family relationship with one another. We are drawn close, close, close to one another. And as we come this morning, we want to first look at the the foundation for faithful ministry that rests on knowing God's call on your life through the gospel that relates to our personal relationship with God the Father. The gospel brings us into a relationship with God under his providence and promises through faith in Christ. That's what it does. First of all, the gospel brings us into a personal relationship with God where that relationship was once stressed, strained, even separated. We had no relationship with the living God. Now, through the gospel, God brings us into a close personal relationship with himself and brings us under his providence and promises so that we might live in the fullness of life. Now, look there at verses 1 and 2 and hear the words of Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from the father, from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. You hear the confidence in Paul's voice. You don't hear fear, do you? You don't hear him stepping back. You don't hear him wavering. This is a strong, confident man. This man is cool, calm, and collected. He's sitting there, under, but understand what Paul is facing. He's in a dark dungeon, a dreary dungeon, a damp dungeon. He's chained. He's having hard times. Listen, he has the sentence of death placed upon his life. And here's what he says. He's not worried about tomorrow. Why? Not because he knows what tomorrow holds, but he knows who holds tomorrow. And so Paul is confident. This is a man in in prison awaiting death. And yet he's confident because of a personal relationship with God the Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the gospel. He's not confident in himself. He's not confident in what he can do. He's confident in his God. What does he point out here in this passage? He doesn't point out his own attributes. He points out the attributes of God the Father. And so he comes and he says, look at God's providence. Look at God's promises. God's providence is shown there in the fact that his will is sovereign. His will is sovereign. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God has ordained me. He has sent me out. He has made me a messenger of the gospel. God has not only converted me on the road to Damascus, but now he has commissioned me and sent me out to serve him. God's providence is in my life. And understand this. He call, uh, Paul is confident that the same God who by his will chose him out of spiritual blindness, by his grace converted him on uh, to the God, converted him to be a son of God. And by his 
will commissioned him to be a servant of the gospel. This same God that was with him in those times on Damascus and in the great ministry opportunities that Paul has had throughout his life is the same God who is in control and is with him in the midst of the dark dungeons awaiting death. Some of us need to get that through our thick heads. How did the gospel song, I'm not much on gospel, but there was an old gospel song, if I'm not mistaken, that said something along the lines, the God of the mountain is still God in the valley. You remember that? That's good theology. And we need to understand, God's not just God and worth serving when we are on high, when we are lifted up, when everything's going right. God is God and He has saved our souls and He is worth serving every minute of every day, no matter where we are. We need to understand, the same God is the God who is in control in in. On the mountain as in the dungeon. And so Paul is confident in God's providence. God's will is perfect in every way. You and I may not understand it, but God knows. And he knows exactly what we need and exactly what we need to go through so that he can conform us to the image of Christ. And that's his purpose. So let me ask you, are you satisfied where you are? Are you content that God knows who you are and where you are and what you need? See, his providence should sustain us through much difficulty. But not only that, Paul is not only confident in God's providence, he is also confident in God's promise. Look at the end of that verse. He's the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God the Father according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. See, he's confident of the promises of God. He says, listen, I've already studied this. I've seen this. The gospel is true. Here's what has happened. God has sent his only begotten son. He lived a perfect life. He died in atoning death and he is raised in glorious victory. And because he lives, I know I am going to live. And I trust God's ability to bring the promises of life. And so even though I face death here in this world, I will live with God. Paul knew the power of the promise of God in his own life. Paul had been saved out of his own spiritual blindness, brought into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, and given the privilege of telling others about Jesus Christ everywhere he went and everything that he did. And now he is making sure that the world knows that Jesus Christ fills him with hope. Because he knows the promise of life that comes in Christ. He got up out of the grave. I too will live even if I die. Paul knew the power of the promise of God. And so in the midst of this depressing situation as a prisoner, he speaks as one whose word has divine sanction. He speaks with confidence when he believes in the sovereignty of God's will, in his gracious, the graciousness of God's providence and in the certainty of God's promise. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe in that? Do you live like that? Do you walk by faith and not by sight? Do you approach all the situations and circumstances of your life saying, you know what, I'm not in control, but God's in control. He's got all of my life in his hands. And so I'm just fine. I may experience difficulty. I may experience uh, bad and dark situations. But listen, when I'm down in the valley, I know that God is on his throne just as much as when I'm crossing the peaks of the mountain. 
Christians draw strength in their trials from their knowledge of God's providence, God's will, and God's promise. We are able to face the trials of life. Those times when you get the call from the doctor and the call comes and you have cancer. You've been there? Some of you have. Some of you have come and wept with me. Or I've gone and wept with you as we went over what you had heard on the phone. When you get the call and the heart is not right, something is wrong. The disease has come in and grown. The death of a loved one has come and stolen everything, all of your hope and your joy, all of what you wanted. And you said, what in the world? How can I go on? Where can I turn in these times? And we are able to face the trials of life when we trust in God. See, it's not self-confidence. It's not self-assurance that brings Paul confidence. It is confidence in God, in God's ways, in God's will, in God's work, in God's providence, in God's promises. Paul's words, even in describing who he is, should be a balm of comfort to our needs. Don't just skim over the first two verses of the letters. Read them. And think about what Paul is saying and why he is saying these things. We in and of ourselves do not have the resources to face the trials and tribulations of life. If we attempt to do it in our own strength, we will be broken and we will either live in denial or in bitterness or a little bit of a mixture of both. But understand, we can't make it on our own. We can only make it in God's power. The Apostle Paul could live and minister in confidence because he believed he knew God's will and God's promise was secure through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he goes on and he pours out the blessings of God's providence and promise in the greeting of Timothy, his beloved son, in the ministry. He speaks of the abundant supply that God has given to all of his people. What is the abundant supply that God has given to all of his people? He has given to us grace and mercy and peace. Grace and mercy and peace. Paul gushes forth the spiritual blessings that God has given to all those who trust in Jesus Christ and he points us back to the God it is the fact that it is the God who has saved him that provides the source of these blessings he is the source source he is the supply of all the blessings of grace mercy and peace he is pointing out that the divine supply uh, the divine supply in order to remind us that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything in this life let me me ask you, when was the last time you said, I'm dependent upon God for everything? You got a 401k today, tomorrow it may be a 101k. Got a big bulging bank account and a wallet. Tomorrow you may have nothing. You've got all the promises of a great house and a great life, a great marriage and great kids. Tomorrow it may all be gone. What's going to be the source of your happiness and hope then? Yourself and your stuff or your God and His Savior? God's grace is His undeserved favor to those who deserve His wrath. The fact that He would give us not He would give us something that we don't deserve. The fact that in Christ Jesus we have God's grace fully expressed by the acronym "Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense." 
Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That God has made us sons and daughters of the Most High, not by who we are and what we could do, but by the work of Jesus Christ there at the cross of Calvary. Next, His mercy is His compassion to those who are in misery because of their sin, those who deserve wrath, those who should rightfully receive God's judgment and God's justice upon their lives because they have transgressed God's law. And yet God withholds His acts of wrath upon them and spares them what they deserve. That's God's mercy and His affection. God's peace is the result of being reconciled to Him because of His grace and His mercy. The fact that we once were enemies of God, we once were in wrong standing. The problem was our sin and our selfishness, the focus on ourselves. And yet God in his mercy spared us from what we deserved, eternal hell, and gave us, gave to us something that we didn't deserve by his grace. We are made sons and daughters of his and will live eternally with him. But understand, now we have peace because we are in right standing with God. So we hear the gospel in these first two verses. God created man in his image to live in a right relationship with himself. And yet man rejected and reviled God. He turned against God. He disobeyed God at every point along the way. He chose to live as he wanted to instead of how God wanted him to. And so we have sin that separates us. But God in his providence promised that he would give a Messiah, that he would give one who would redeem mankind from the sin that they had committed. And so he sent Jesus Christ, the only begotten, his only begotten son to this world to live a perfect life die an atoning death and raise raise again on the third day in glorious victory over sin death and hell so that all of those who would repent of their sins and place their faith in jesus christ would be saved not just here and now not just for a moment not just so they could be focused on themselves but so that they could serve the king who do you serve this morning do you believe the gospel Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ? Are you serving Him? Listen, these blessings of grace, mercy, and peace do not come to you by what you have done for God. You can't ever attend enough Sunday services to get to God. Praise God, because that would be terrible. You can't attend enough Sunday schools to, to get to God. You can't attend enough Wednesday night Bible studies to get to God. But listen, because God has brought us to Himself, we ought to want to do those things. See how that works. God's grace, mercy, and love, peace pour out upon us. And because God's grace, mercy, and peace pour out upon us, it brings us increasingly to want to serve Him. Let me ask you this morning to ask yourself, have I ever experienced new life in Christ according to God's promise? Have I lived under God's providence, living in God's will, uh, understanding that He is sovereign and He is able to know and meet all the needs in the way that He knows is best? If you can answer yes, then you have a foundation for serving Him faithfully for the rest of your life. But if your answer is no, I challenge you today to be right with Christ, to surrender yourself to Him. Listen, no matter what the trials 
of this life may bring, whether it's persecution or even execution, as the Apostle Paul faced, or it's just discouragement and depression as we often face. Listen, when we submit ourselves to God, He is able to provide and protect us and bring to fruition the promises that He has given. For indeed, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. God's call on our life through the gospel is the foundation for a life of faithful service. But secondly, this morning and quickly, the gospel brings us into close life-changing relationships with other Christians. The gospel brings us into close life-changing relationships with other Christians. Look in verses 3 through 5. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way of my for the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. This opening greeting oozes forth the pathos, the the love, the, the emotion, the raw emotion of Paul's heart. Paul's deep feelings of love for young Timothy. Indeed, he is his beloved son. He constantly remembered him in his prayers and he longed for the joy of seeing him again, even as he recalled Timothy's tears on their last parting. We don't know whether Timothy ever got to the cell to see the Apostle Paul before the sword dropped. But we do know this. We see the love, the care and concern clearly expressed and recorded for all of eternity in the pages of Scripture between one who is walking with God and serving Him with all of his heart, soul and mind and one who is coming in his footsteps. There's a great connection. Don't miss it, church family. We shouldn't just call ourselves church. We should be a church family. Look around you. Sort of like home. Some you like, some you don't, huh? We are a church family. This is a this is an ongoing thing. These people are praying for each other night and day. These are close personal relationships that Paul has. Listen, beyond Timothy, Paul names in this short letter many others who he knew and loved in the gospel. Paul was not a spiritual lone ranger. He was not a lone ranger Christian. Indeed, if you want to be truthful about it, the lone ranger wasn't even a lone ranger, was he? He had Tonto. How many of you know even who that is? All the young people don't know. I'm getting past it. Here's the thing. We are not made by God to be stand-alone individuals divorced from any relationships to other Christians. This is supposed to be a tight-knit, close church family. These dear brothers and sisters in Christ loved God and they loved Paul. These relationships had changed them all. Often when we counsel someone who is struggling with with serious sin and personal problems, we ask them the question, well, do you have anyone to come alongside of you, to minister to you, to meet with on a weekly basis, to encourage you to walk in the gospel, to live in the gospel each and every moment of the week? And you know what the sad response is? No. Look around you. 300 people, pick some of them. You ought to have somebody that is a close personal friend walking in Christ with you. Men, find other men. Women, find other women. 
Love one another. Minister to one another. Care for one another. Christian life is not just you and God. It's you and God and all of God's people. Praise the Lord. But we've divorced that in American Christianity. We're spiritual lone rangers. I don't need anybody and I don't want anything. I remember in 1998, I went to Alaska and on that mission trip to Alaska, I stepped in a hole, twisted my ankle and, you know, the pride sort of swelled up just for a moment uh, there, there in my heart and in my life. I'm, you know, 18 years old or no, at that point I was, what, 20, 20 years old. And I stand up and say, Todd, do you need anything? No, no, I'm just fine. In fact, for the rest of the trip, they gave me a hat at the end of the trip that said, no, I'm fine. Because I wanted to try to make it on my own. I needed them. I needed them to get me to the hospital. I needed them to carry me around for the next few days on a, uh, in a wheelchair uh, so, that, so that my ankle could recover. I needed them desperately. Here's the thing. Paul mentions many people in this, in this letter who administered to him greatly. And we need to be the same way. It's only as you remain committed to God's people in a local church and work through your problems in accordance with God's word that you will grow as a Christian and have a foundation for serving him. Try to look for both, both a, a Paul and a Timothy in your life. You ought to look for somebody who is spiritually more mature than you and reach out to them and say, please come alongside of me. Help me. Encourage me. Show me what it means to walk walk in this Christian life and you ought to have a hand reaching back to someone else saying listen I know you're younger I know you're struggling I know you're going through things but I want you as I learn to walk with Christ in my life I want you to come along with me you ought to have hands reaching out both directions surrounding yourself with the family of God in intense relationships where you are committed to encouraging one another in spiritual things Mom and dad, how are you doing with your kids? How are you doing at being their spiritual mentor, their spiritual guide? Oh, they won't like it, I assure you. It'll be a struggle to start with. Teach them what it means at an early age to have people who speak the truth and love into their life. These relationships that we form through the gospel should cause us to thank God and to pray continually for one another. These verses are so rich. I mean, this is just amazing. Just notice Paul's gratitude, his other-centeredness. I sat in my office this morning and wept because I, I was sitting there just picturing Paul. A dark, damp dungeon. Chains and shackles, perhaps mold and mildew, maybe rats. I don't know who, who knows what he was sitting in when he writes this letter. But I think of a man sitting in that situation. And his first words out of the box are in verse 3. I thank God. Man, what a different perspective on life. What a change. What a transformation. I thank God. 
He's not fixating on himself, his plight, his situation and circumstances. Instead of turning in on himself and counting up all the ways that he has to be discouraged and disappointed and depressed and frustrated. Instead of talking about how all of his needs aren't met and people aren't doing what he wants to do. Paul begins with, I thank God. His attitude of thankfulness. His attitude of gratitude to God for the serv- for His ability to serve in His eternal kingdom overwhelms you. Dear Timothy, I'm in prison. I'm chained up. I'm awaiting my execution. But Timothy, just today I thought of you. And I thank God for you. I thank God for the faith that dwelt in your mother uh, Eunice and in your grandmother Lois. And I thank God that that same sincere faith is in you. I'm praying for you night and day, Timothy. I, what? Paul, you're about to be killed and martyred. I know, but that pales in comparison to what's really important. I thank God for the gospel that has saved my soul and is saving the souls of all who will repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. Timothy, you're the son of a Jewish woman and a pagan Greek father. Your father never seems to have come to Christ. And we're wondering, if is there any hope? Is there anything that can, good can come out of this situation? Timothy, you're sort of messed up and you're from a home that's really messed up. Can anything co- good come out? Yes, God's providence and promise of salvation can deliver anybody from anywhere with anything in their past. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know God's providence and provision in your life? His promise, His salvation? See, God's power was sufficient to fulfill the promise of delivering Eunice and Lois and Timothy to the Christian faith. God sends forth his words and we understand that it will not return to him void, but it will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it forth. And so we understand the messed up present predicament of our life is no guarantee of the future outcome if we trust by faith in God's providence and promise of salvation in the gospel through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not a guarantee just because your life is messed up right now, just because everything has turned against you, just because you are going through dark times, depressing times, distressing times, times where you would be discouraged in and of yourself. Listen, that is no guarantee of the outcome if you are trusting in the God of the universe to save your soul. And my question this morning is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? See, the gospel brings us into a personal relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, His Son. But the gospel also brings us into close personal relationships with one another so that we might live as the church family, as a Christian family here within this world. But understand, this old, worn, and weary runner is crossing the finish line way ahead of the pack and turning around and sprinting back to us today and saying, listen, don't you stop. Don't you lay it down. Don't you quit. Don't turn back. You keep running. You keep living for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You live a life of consequence for our glorious God and His eternal kingdom. Father, as we come today, we ask that You would lead us and guide us in this time of decision. Father, that we would be led not to live for ourselves, but to live for You. Lord, we know that it may bring difficulty. Lord, there may be times of discouragement. There may be times where we are going through hardships and heartaches. But Lord, we truly trust in Jesus Christ to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. Father, so that we might live by your grace and for your glory. Lord, we surrender our hearts to you. Father, this morning we pray that you would have your own way in our lives. Father, whether it's the heights of the mountains or the depths of the valley that you want to take us through, we pray that you would have your way in our lives so that indeed we might be increasingly conformed to your image moment by moment and day by day. Lord, may you lead us now to have the firm foundations of ministry for the rest of our lives, devoting all of our course to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a decision this morning that you want to make, I want to invite you.